1: Hello and welcome to New Books in Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Sarah Tayson, associate professor of philosophy at the University of Colorado Denver, and I'm co-host of the channel along with Carrie Figdor, Robert Talise, and Alexis McLeod. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books, drawing from a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Patricia Hill Collins, distinguished professor emerita of sociology at the University of Maryland College Park. Her book. Intersectionality as Critical Social Theory, is just out from Duke University Press. Is intersectionality a critical social theory? What must intersectionality do to be both critical and a social theory? Does it have to have social justice as a guiding normative principle? And what does or should social justice mean in intersectional theory? Patricia Hill Collins explores these questions and many more in Intersectionality as Critical Social Theory engaging a wide range of thinkers, activists, and traditions, including classical American pragmatism, the Frankfurt School, and the work of Ida B. Wells Barnett. Collins helps us to reconsider how we think of intersectionality's history in order to shape its future. Uh, Good morning, Patricia Hill Collins. Welcome to New Books in Philosophy. Thank you. Um, So we like to start out by uh, hearing a bit about your background and who you are as a theorist and your interests and how you came to write this book.
0: I came to write this particular book through the catalyst of a graduate course I was teaching in intersectionality at the University of Maryland. I have been working in the field of intersectionality for quite some time, or I had been working with the ideas that have c- uh, come to be known as intersectionality for some time. And what I wanted to do was to offer a course that would help me synthesize the ideas that I'd been working with. Now, what was interesting about this particular course was when I looked to put it together and examine the emerging themes of intersectionality or the literature on intersectionality, I was not happy with what I was finding. My experience of intersectionality uh, did not necessarily match up with the discourse that seemed to be emerging that I could use in a course on social theory. So a word about my experiences, because they really do lead to this particular book. For one, I had written this book in that was published in 1990 titled Black Feminist Thought that is still in print, uh, p- proudly in print to be honest with you, that Introduces the ideas of intersectionality without using the term intersectionality per se. It was originally published in 1990, and by the time I revised it in 2000, I incorporated the idea of intersectionality because the ideas had been named as such by then. I was talking about a matrix of domination in 1990 because I was much more closely aligned with the ideas of social movements that preceded this particular idea. I had also, prior to putting together my course at the University of Maryland, worked through uh, several editions with my, uh, my colleague, Margaret Anderson, of a book titled Race, Class, Gender, an Anthology. And what we were doing was we were mapping the emergence of what came to be known as the field of intersectionality in real time. We were pulling ideas from so many different people and putting their work in an anthology, which we realized every three years we had to update because the ideas of intersectionality, as we now call them, were emerging then. And this work was coming out of the 50s, the 60s, the 70s. This was mid-20th century work that followed World War II and the globalization that we are so comfortable with today. So... Working through that project in real time and recognizing that the race, class, gender studies was in fact moving toward intersectionality was a way to keep my uh, feet on the ground around social movements and also around ideas as they manifest themselves to us in the academy. But significantly, the experiences that led me to my course at the University of Maryland began when I worked in community politics when I was a young woman, Uh, just out of, with my graduate school degree in hand, I had a Master of Arts in Teaching degree, and I went to work for five years in the community schools movement in Boston. And in those schools, three schools where we were attempting to develop schools for black children that would be relevant for them, where we had to take a step back and look at the curriculum, we had to look at the range of those of us who were teaching in those schools which ranged from nuns to all kinds of people, um, was really an exciting period of time where I got to think about how ideas matter and how they matter in political struggle and how political struggle can shape ideas that are extremely powerful. But of course, if ideas are powerful, then institutions and those in power recognize that and worry about that and try and do something about that. But my years at St. Joe's gave me a sense of intellectual freedom that I have only since recovered now that I am retired from the University of Maryland and I don't have the institutional mandates that I've had for quite some time. So having said that, I have lived my material. I had walked the walk of my material. I had really known the ideas of many people who were um, Chicana and Puerto Ricano and indigenous and white and Asian and global in shaping the ideas of intersectionality as a discourse that emerges, the possibility of it emerges in a globalizing world, a desegregating and decolonizing world. So that's the vision I had of intersectionality that I thought would propel intersectionality as critical social theory. That's the course I wanted to teach. Well, that's not the course I ended up teaching. Uh, In part, the, um, the course itself, it's not that it was a disappointment, but it allowed me to look at the emerging literature on how these ideas that were unruly, that were spread out that were connected with specific projects of anti-racism and feminism and all the isms that we talk about today. People who were trying to bring about a better world were being imported into the academy and recast as a discourse of intersectionality in the academy. So here's what I found. I first found, while teaching my course, and by the way, I was quite diligent at looking at literature, which was continuing to be published All right, I was looking for things I could work with graduate students with where we could talk about uh, the ideas of theory. And what I found was quite interesting. I found, first of all, many, many articles that referred to Kimberly Crenshaw, and that was it. It was the so-called coining narrative. Everyone was citing one or two articles by Kimberly Crenshaw, and that was it. It was almost as if Crenshaw had never written another thing since 1990. And it was also interesting to see All of the people who were not there. So this said to me that what what was going on there. I was looking at articles where they were citing her, and then over time they were citing each other. It was creating a different foundation for the field itself that I I had not seen. A second thing that I saw was the uh, the repetition of the unsubstantiated claim that intersectionality was a theory. Now here I am teaching a theory class. And I'm reading works where people are saying the theory of intersectionality, the theory of intersectionality, and it left me wondering, what are they thinking about here? What is the theory that they have in mind as they are putting forth this unsubstantiated claim? A third thing that happened was the mentioning of intersectionality in the first few pages of the article, if not the title. What struck me was how quickly people moved on from intersectionality. They were appropriating the term. And using it in a particularly narrow way for their own projects. And I think that's important to keep in mind in terms of why I decided to write this particular book. But finally, and most significantly for me, most of these narratives began in 1990. They began with Crenshaw. They began with the recognition in the academy of the term intersectionality. It was almost as if it didn't exist until the academy discovered it through its uh, colonizer or friendly guide, who would be Kimberly Crenshaw, introducing these ideas. And all of the work that had gone into developing the ideas of intersectionality and its potential, particularly its critical potential, In my mind could potentially be stripped by the way we were going about teaching it and writing about it. Now that was my fear. I wanted to know what that all meant. Now fortunately my fear was unfounded because there are many people who have since then taken up the challenge of writing about intersectionality and not in a narrow way. They have attended to the field as opposed to just the concept as it floats around freely from social media to the academy to who knows where at this particular point in time. So I decided that I was going to write the book for the seminar that I wish I could have been able to assign I was going to write the book that I should have been able to read, and I was going to engage the issues seriously around intersectionality as a critical social theory. Looking at each one of those words, intersectionality, critical, what does that mean? Social, what does that mean to do theorizing and to work with ideas that are embedded in and tied to the social world and not just in your own? mind, and theory as a specialized discourse or way of thinking about the world that explains and shapes the world. So for me, the title Intersectionality as Critical Social Theory comes from many different sources, both lived, both teaching, um, intellectual in terms of my scholarship, and activist settings as well that I myself have participated in.
1: Yeah, yeah, and, and this really um, resonates, resonates with my, my experience of reading, reading the, book, the book, which, which is, is that, that every, every word is doing, doing. work. Mm. So that the way that you explain the title just now, it makes total sense, right? Like every every term in that title is doing work and is going to be explored, and and so one of the obviously one of the terms the concepts that you're focused on is intersectionality and one of the ways that you set that up for your reader in part to avoid the sort of coining um, explorer narrative that you're resisting is to give a taxonomy of intersectionality and talk about the way um, the way that it can be used and this both helps your reader understand what intersectionality can do but then leaves open its potential and so you talk about it as a metaphor as a heuristic and as a paradigm, and you call, you call the use of intersectionality as a metaphor, a heuristic and a paradigm, the cognitive foundations for intersectionality. So would you, would you talk about these cognitive foundations um, and how they, they work as foundations for intersectionality?
0: I felt it was very important not to replicate the um, problems of uh, dominant narratives around how we think about knowledge, whether it's historical, this linear story of progress. I wanted to avoid that. I wanted to avoid a linear narrative within intersectionality and unsettle it. Those who felt that they were most knowledgeable as opposed to those who were just entering into the field, uh, that as well. So I wanted to come up with a vocabulary that um, was democratic in a lot of ways that um, reflected What I see is the participatory democracy or the commitment to participatory knowledge creation and democratic knowledge creation that has been part of the field before it has to engage um, other ways of creating knowledge and legitimating knowledge. So I was interested in finding places where many people could participate, but where it was very clear that everyone only had a partial perspective, So the whole notion of uh, the cognitive foundations of intersectionality was designed to unsettle everyone and yet provide a vocabulary for everyone, for being self-reflexive about how they had entered into intersectionality, what they were doing there now, where they might go next. The concept of intersectionality as a metaphor is very useful because the metaphor itself speaks to uh, a meeting place. That would be one way of thinking about intersectionality as the intersection of many strands or the intersection of many pathways or the intersection of many journeys, that itself is always changed based on who's in the intersection, how they got there, and where they go. And each time you come back to that same intersection, it's different. Each time you return to intersectionality to um, attend to it as a discourse and a set of practices, it's different. It's changed. It's moved. But it's not necessarily linear change the way we're used to thinking about change. So I found that that thinking about the cognitive foundations of intersectionality uh, of how people were actually using it. I mean, as opposed to what I thought it was and then I impose my definition on everyone, what are people actually doing when they do intersectional work, whether it's in the academy, whether it's theoretical, whether it's uh, in social organizations, whether it's grassroots politics. I mean, intersectionality is quite broad it isn't just one set of ideas, that specialty knowledge. Uh, So I said, let me just, let me think about this. The metaphor seemed to be the place to start. That seemed to be the place that's the easiest access where for a metaphor, we use metaphors to make sense of things that we don't know or that are unfamiliar by using things that we do know. We ground our our grasp of the world, whether you're a two-year-old or a five-year-old. You go with your two-year-old knowledge or your five-year-old knowledge, and you use what you know to extrapolate and figure out what else is there that you don't know. And you are changed by that process, and it is changed by that process, if it is a fair conversation. So the metaphor of a meeting place that allowed people to Get a sense of, aha, I think I know what you're talking about when you talk about racism because I've experienced sexism. Or, aha, I think I get that heterosexism and that homophobia because I've experienced racism. Those are the kinds of conversations you can have in the space of intersectionality, using it metaphorically. All right. it, it's a place that creates imagination and possibilities. So I really liked keeping that. But at the same time, we can't all just hang out in the intersection. Uh, there's got to be something a bit more structured. So a second site that seemed to me um, where intersectionality was widely used is the notion of a heuristic or a rule of thumb that involves problem solving, social problem solving in particular. So many people entered intersectionality or found themselves in the crossroads of intersectionality because they were on pathways of problem solving. They were trying to solve problems of reproductive justice or issues of violence or social problems of poverty or social problem of racism as a social problem for many so that's really the um uh, the impetus for Trying to get something done, trying to improve the world and realizing that your race only or your gender only or your class only or your sexuality only frame or lens or analysis of your problem was going to be inadequate. Now, this is something that I really feel in the bones through my work on black women. Because my work on Black women starts with Black women in captivity, African American women. And the situation of captivity, or racial captivity, was different for Black men and Black women. A race-only frame certainly captures the racism, but it does not capture the nuances, the gendered nuances of that experience black women under captivity realized that they had a particular form of slavery that they could bring to a broader discussion about slavery. And that was the first intersection in many ways of race and gender. When you realize, well, you can't parse out the race from the gender or the gender from the race. They are inherently joined together and yet they have distinctive influences, which is at the heart of an intersectional analysis. So using Uh, intersectionality as a heuristic brings that into view. Because what what happens is many people are working on social problems in many, many different places, and they're arriving at this recognition that they need more or they need to do more. So um, I see the heuristic use of intersectionality as being very important. And also these tend to be the people who are trying to get things done and to have deliverables for people who really are suffering or who are subordinated. So focusing on the heuristics is one way to make sure in some ways that the activist community is engaged in the theorizing and recognizing that the ideas that come from the heuristic use of intersectionality are just as important and significant as those that um, emanate in other places. Now, the paradigms. Which in this book I describe as frameworks. I'm going to quote myself, which I love to be able to do at this point in my life frameworks that describe, interpret, analyze, and in some cases explain both the knowledge that is being produced as well as the processes used to produce it. The concept of paradigm gets at this connection between ideas and social context in a way that is a bit more structured and formal than metaphor and heuristic. But what the concept of paradigm also does is it gives an opportunity to think about social change. The notion of a paradigm shift is a concept that has really entered into almost everyday speech. That one day you're thinking about things one day and the next day you wake up and you realize, aha, There's a paradigm shift in how I'm viewing the world, whether it's something as basic as, should I stay with this man I've been with forever, and the next day you say, aha, no, or I definitely will, or whether it's something like social inequality, where if we look at the work on social inequality that's been done... um, It's really been fairly tame. That's how I've read this for years, through the lens of a dominant group. But when you have a paradigm shift like intersectionality, it opens up new ways, new questions, but it also gets you to look at the ways in which you are constructing knowledge, the methodology that you're using. Now, I faced a big dilemma in, in writing chapter one. Chapter one is always the most difficult chapter of any book that I've ever written, because in many ways you wrote a chapter, you write a chapter one, you actually see how the book unfolds. And then when you come back, you have to figure out how to how to craft your argument so that it is open. That participatory democracy theme that I mentioned earlier, yet it is structured and yet it carries, it provides an infrastructure for the remainder of the book. So I found this motion, these ideas of metaphor, heuristic, and paradigm as almost not linear, but providing a foundation for moving forward with theorizing and theory. Each of them offered something different to that broader question of, is intersectionality a critical social theory? What might it look like if it were? What does critical social theorizing look like for intersectionality? How might that be the same or different than critical social theory or theorizing in other fields? So that first chapter was really very important in doing that. And there's a lot there, but that would be the thinking that actually underlies that.
1: Yeah. And it makes sense of a metaphor you use later coming out of Polly Murray's work and life of a journey of intersectionality as a journey. I think that that, and it's interesting that you say that it was like sort of you had to come write the chapter and then come back to it. Um, I think that captures the nonlinear sense of journey that you use in that chapter. I actually think that's really
0: how I live my life. You know, you really, if you're on a straight line evolutionary progress journey, What tends to happen is you think you've outgrown everything that you did when you were younger or when you started out. But a journey to me is an ever spiraling deepening or understanding of something that is a core question that's going to shape your life and shape your ideas. So for me, the journey towards social justice has been quite significant. That has grounded pretty much everything I've done. And I look at the work of Pauli Murray, where I think that was very much the case for her. And it wasn't meandering at all. It was quite um, thoughtful in terms of returning the things that you think you once knew, but now you have to know them again. So it's not that you move through something and master it it's not that kind of a journey. Uh, I, I really like the idea of my medical professionals mastering certain fields and not forgetting them. So this is a somewhat different kind of journey. That's an intellectual, theoretical journey about the social world that is ever changing. So we're always moving in trying to engage that.
1: Yeah, and this. So one of the the you move then to consider what makes a social theory critical, and I think that's. Part of, part of your last answer was starting to get into this question of the critical. And one thing I found compelling about your understanding of what makes something critical is that there's obviously this, this well known idea of offering a reasoned judgment of an idea, a practice, or a behavior. But you offer, <clears throat> excuse me, this other sense of critical as being essential or needed. And I wonder to what extent sort of the work of the book is to show um, that intersectionality can be critical in that sense. It can be like water for life.
0: I think the intent of the book is to show both meanings of intersectionality. Because the water for life really sums up the the impetus for why people who are in need, I'm going to say not even people generally, I mean subordinated people, people who are downtrodden, people who are oppressed, people who are trying to claim a full, and live a fully human life within systems that tell them they are not fully human and not entitled to that kind of life need knowledge and ideas and theories that explain their reality from the point of view of themselves, that they own. Not that someone comes in and gives to them, All right, I want to develop a critical consciousness in you, you poor downtrodden people. But how does one cultivate critical analysis within the context of a community or communities that are routinely seen as not having one, if not the, not even having the capability of generating that? Now, I, again, ground my work in the work of uh, black feminism and black women. Now, by all rights, black women in this country should not have, have thought an original thought ever, because the um, oppression was so severe. If you are brought into a new world to craft a future and you're not even allowed the past that you had, your language, your your family, everything is taken away from you, and including control over your own body. Now you need something essential that is water for life that will nurture that life you are trying to live. And Seeing ideas as being empowering and creating space for that is how I view Black feminist thought. Now, I don't think that Black women own intersectionality or are the only group that have thought an original thought or are critical in this way. I think this is something that's far more widespread than we have been led to believe. If you were to theorize from the bottom, you would get a sense of critical. It's critical that we get this right, because if we don't get this right, the police are going to kill my child. You get that kind of sense of imperative, essential, necessary, must have, critical. And if we can have ideas that actually capture, uh, explore, advance that sense of critical, and we couple that sense of critical with the more diligent, reasoned, um, logical arguments of criticizing the systems that are doing that, we end up with a very powerful sense of critical and both senses of critical are highly threatening to the status quo. So in some ways I see what passes as criticism in media or in, um, in the Academy as basically a sort of a watered down version of criticism It calls itself critical all the time. Many, in fact, if anything, the word critical is losing its steam because it gets uh, annexed to so many things. My work is critical because I'm calling it critical, but it was nothing changed except I added the word critical. You see, I'm really trying to dig deep into the meaning of critical in this particular book and ground this meaning of critical in um, actual social conditions, such as the ones that I've just shared with you. So, the need to survive, the need to craft appropriate responses to power, is crucial, and that's, I think, what I would, what I would say about that right now.
1: It really strongly reminds me of a of a line from Audrey Lorde where she says, um, "Those who live and love in the trenches know that the war against depression is unceasing." Yes. Um, well. I wish I had cited that. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it's a, I try to teach it every semester, like into whatever class I can shoehorn it. You know, it's just I, it, it, yeah. well, the
0: nice, the beauty of intellectual work is it's ongoing. I mean, mm. a book like this is one moment in time. You know, I position it in terms of kind of where it started and all the other things that have occurred in relation to it. But I think it's important never to give up being surprised or to get being open to ideas from many many different places so i wish you had been at my elbow when i was writing i can only imagine the things i would have in this book had there been a sarah tyson there saying well how about
1: this (laughs) that is that is a true compliment thank you um (laughs) well and it, it so this this willingness to be surprised i think really makes sense of of where you go next with the idea of these resistant knowledge productions um and the three that you, you focus on are critical race studies, feminism, and decolonial knowledge projects. Um, and so, so will you, what's important? I mean, I think your last answer really speaks to this, but about resistant knowledge production um, for critical social theorizing.
0: I think it's important. You know, what I begin to do in this chapter is systematize this whole notion of resistant knowledge projects. Because what I'm really interested in is not having to theorize from within the center of dominant discourse. Because when you do that, you're always positioned as the critic of dominant discourse and not as the creator of dominant discourse. Your discourse never becomes dominant, it's always forever the critic that somehow helps that dominant discourse survive or whatever. I mean, chapter two is all about sort of showing my chops in my ability to be a critical um, analyst of of dominant discourse, you know, taking on the Frankfurt School and taking on, good heavens, taking on post-structuralism, which just makes me pull my great. hair out sometimes.
1: I know, but it was so great. <laughs> <laughs> I had to dig deep to get that one out, but I tell you. Uh, well, thank you. It's a contribution to the literature. <laughs>
0: Well, I was very frustrated by, again, anytime I see somebody being elevated as the new god of of criticism, I'm going to want to read that and think about it using this other notion of critical. And also what happens when people are critical within the academy? This is the British cultural studies discourse. So in many ways, these are three very different discourses that claim to be resistant knowledge traditions, but in in their own ways can only take it so far. Um, I wanted to step outside of that, those academic debates. And this was, this was a bit iffy because, you know, it is theory, and theory doesn't happen outside the academy. Legitimate theory, what's outside the academy is data that we go find to bring back in. That That is really a, a common framing assumption that, that, uh, that I think I, I just have never agreed with, but um, you have to live with it. So I was really looking for um, – uh, resistant knowledge traditions that I was familiar with. Now, there are many I don't know anything about, and this is really the invitation there, to at least take a stab at saying, here are the kinds of things that happen when you theorize from the position of trying to make something happen for your group or make something happen for your people. And it isn't just an individual me as the individual critic um, taking on uh, whatever. It's basically trying to move something socially and how ideas can do that. Critical race theory should have convinced anybody, the little teeny weeny taste that I have in this book, this is a huge area, that basically what happens historically is the critical race theorists have been uh, delegated to outside of dominant discourse. This is the racism that basically says Black people can't think, we're not intellectually gifted, we can't do this. So that you have to be the exceptional Black person in order to be taken seriously within some of these structures. Deflecting that particular argument to the past and, and introducing the idea of William E. Du Bois, who was a, a tireless warrior, for resistant knowledge and for critical race that who is now uh, today being cavalierly claimed by by uh, fields of study saying yes, but we we, really, we feel bad about the fact that Du Bois was not included but we've come to our senses well that was a hundred years ago people you know I mean really how much mileage can and you get from that? So critical race theory really looking at the whole notion of upending racism from within the belly of the beast, which is something that Du Bois did and it's something that a lot of Black scholars today continue to do. They have to be aware of the framing assumptions of their disciplines, and it's hard to see those framing assumptions somehow because they are designed to shut down radical and critical thought. That's exactly what they do if you do too much of this from within the academy. But I felt it was important to introduce that aspect of critical race theory, um, which has very much had a wall put up around it. You can have racial data, you can have racial experiences, you can have racial narratives, you can have all of that, but you can't have theory, because that's actually setting the terms of the debate. So that was what my intention there. The feminism. Feminism is really interesting because it's been so central to the traveling of intersectionality itself. Uh, The danger that I wanted to identify there was this is resistant knowledge, but it also has to be very mindful of the relations within its borders uh, in terms of how they can advance or narrow possibilities for resistance. So... This is, these are the, the criticisms about how women of color have been treated within feminism. You know, I really tried to sidestep all of that to ask the question, what is the power of feminism and how could the power of feminist theory be greater and deeper if it really were profoundly intersectional? Now, the danger there, as I see it, is that many people who encounter intersectionality tend to encounter it through feminism. So they tend to involve themselves in what I would call the sort of the slippery logic of assuming that intersectionality is a feminist theory. This is how this begins to connect up in some interesting ways. And if that's the case, then feminism invented Intersectionality and it becomes another uh, box, way of boxing in intersectionality by very well meaning people who have to push themselves further to leave feminism to get a sense of other resistant knowledge traditions. If I made you go to the anti-racist conference that didn't have the word feminism in it, how comfortable would you be? So this is the kind of journey thinking that we were talking about a bit earlier. Um, so, you know, so feminism I wanted to acknowledge as being so important, but also say, no, 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 this isn't us us against the world kind of thing. The us has to be unpacked. In that particular resistant knowledge project. Now I'm going to confess the decolonial knowledge project was new is one that I'm still working my way through now because I'm traveling and still trying to learn. I know things, and I have put breadcrumbs throughout the book about the things that are decolonial. Uh, the argument about Frantz Fanon in uh, Chapter 2 is designed to address um, post-structuralism, but what it does also is it lays a foundation for resistant knowledge projects of decolonization because he was very much talking about liberation struggles. Uh, so this left me asking questions like, All right, where are the decolonial knowledge projects, both disciplinary projects, but also, excuse me, both uh, national projects, but also disciplinary projects? Um, I ended up on the path of thinking about decolonial struggles through a trip to Brazil and spending time with some wonderful artists there who were using theater and dance and music and were thinking about the decolonial possibilities of the arts. It was an eye-opening experience for me. And I came back and I said, I really need to follow the breadcrumbs of decoloniality. Now, for the chapter in intersectionality um, as critical social theory, I couldn't write uh, an affirmative section on um, decoloniality or decolonization with the same degree of rigor as, as I could about race and gender. But what I could do was write a section that was about what happened to post-colonial um, studies in the academy and it as a site of contestation. But um, I, I feel quite good about adding that chapter. I was, It was not originally in the book. It's something I added later on and I think I really needed that chapter or else my book would have been too grounded in um, what was familiar to academics. I had to just create that space. So that's where that came from and that was the intent of doing that work.
1: Well, and I think it really sets up for later in, in the book where you talk about Bill Cohen's work and the spider's web image and the possibility that intersectionality is sort of caught up in an epistemological situation where things have to be put back together. And if that isn't where you come from, then it's not the right way forward. Absolutely.
0: this is the whole notion of can you come up with a truly radical and liberatory theory from within the belly of the beast of the academy Mm. all right and if your strategies for finding ideas that aren't going to manifest themselves in the academy are to go outside the academy and just steal stuff from people and reframe it is that going to help so it was very helpful for me to, and I, you know, I I had to find a way to get the indigenous, to get indigenous ideas there in the book and while saying to people, this is not my area of expertise. It may never be, but I'm going to know a lot more later than I know now when I was writing this particular book. I was fortunate enough to go to New Zealand and sit with Graham Smith and Linda uh, Smith, who are major Maori scholars. And they sort of said, you know what, you know, we're, we're going to help you because we realize you're motivated, but um, we, we can tell you, you have a ways to go. So what was helpful, that, that example is one that Graham shared with me at his dining room table. He opened up his, his laptop and he said, I'm going to tell you about the spider's web. And he sort of taught me in a way that I would be taught if I were, in fact, indigenous all right, which is through narrative, which is through stories, which is through meanings that come in a different way. Not that that's the only way to do it, but I thought it was an extremely powerful moment of my trip. And I said, I I said to myself, I wish I could do more and I will do more. So, and I have done more. So this whole notion of people in the academy sort of now wanting to go beyond creating, um, sort of a discourse on intersectionality that, that makes it legitimate and because, you know, it's theoretical and the whole question of what, are, what is the substance of the theory itself, and, you know, the Shishi term is the term co-formation. This is the term, co-formation. Right. Well, intersectionality is about relationality and it would like to be about co- co-formation. But to rush to the space to say we know what co-formation is, I don't know if we can get there from where we are now. So that was the intent of both um, laying breadcrumbs throughout the book for a decolonial framework, because in many ways, indigenous studies and indigenous peoples are all about uh, decolonization and resisting colonization. It's not a liberation struggle in the same way that races. It lays a foundation, and this was my way of saying, here's a hint, here's a trace in this particular book and maybe I can do better later.
1: That's, yeah, that's an amazing account of the, what, as you called it, the breadcrumbs. Um, and so so central to your book is a dialogical methodology. Um, and you not only theorize it, but you use it throughout the book. So you're performing something you're also theorizing. Um, and so will you talk about why dialogical methodology is important for intersectionality and what it allowed you to think, for instance, when you put together, um, you know, like classical uh, American pragmatism and the work of Ida B. Wells.
0: You know, I feel like my life is just one huge dialogue and um, I don't consider that to be a problem. I consider that to be a good thing because I recognize that I do not create knowledge by myself, nor do I legitimate it by myself, that I am positioned within the process of knowledge construction. Um, And the, the process of knowledge construction is a power hierarchy. There are those who are positioned above me and those who are positioned below me, and I am traveling within those power relations. And intersectionality is a discourse that really says you have to have a dialogue about truth or a dialogue about justice, or a dialogue about whatever those normative principles are, or the social problem that you're trying to solve. You can't do it by yourself, just in your head. It really occurs through use, through testing, and through dialogue. So the dialogical engagement, which maps onto the question, the the idea of intersectionality as a crossroads where people can dialogue. That's sort of the metaphoric use. But the dialogical engagement also has a very important paradigmatic use of how we manage to um, have conversations and create new knowledge through our conversations. I started this uh, interview talking about teaching in my classroom as a place of uh, where things, I noticed some things as I was putting this class together. I tend to look at my classrooms pedagogically as dialogues. The whole notion of a dialogical pedagogy to me parallels a dialogical methodology. It's the way I work. Because when we get in a room together that is a classroom, it's actually an intersectional space. That's a crossroads of all of us there. The people who who are actually in the room, even though we don't have that Luxury anymore with COVID, Mm. but also the knowledge that is also in the room with us that I'm bringing. And in the case of that particular class, I was bringing knowledge that was, you know, suspect to me. So the question of what can we learn across dialogues, not just of difference because that's how it's often depicted that if you're in a dialogue it's friendly it's you know it's like you're it's lovey-dovey we're going to chat about things etc but most dialogues have conflict in them how do we actually have dialogues across differences of power that create conflict and how do we navigate that because that's the process for me of co-construction I don't think you can get to a co-construction um, or co-formation in intersectionality as a form of relationality without dialogical engagement. Now, things that I've learned about dialogical engagement along the way um, are hmm, the role of the translator is crucial. And in classrooms, the role of the teacher as the translator is crucial. The teacher is listening to the students and saying, what are they really saying? And how would that speak back to the material that I'm giving them? How do I empower them to speak back to the material that I'm giving them? But also, how does getting those ideas into the material that's the substance of the course speak to the dialogue itself? So this whole notion of translation being a third sphere of how knowledge is constructed, it isn't just like one group and the other group talking to each other. That's kind of a pretty, you know, that's a place to start. But it's very much how to have those uh, discussions across differences in power. My chapter on epistemic resistance, which I believe is chapter four, um, gets at this, in academic settings and within interpretive communities and that often think they're having dialogues. This is what I've noticed routinely in, in, you know, some of my settings in the academy um, that you've got some people talking and other people not never saying anything. And uh, the silence is often identified as consent and support, but that silence is really submission. It is not about, I agree with what you're saying. It's that I recognize the power relations that I'm in and I'm not going to say anything because either I won't be listened to or um, I will be punished if I say what what violates the norm. I decided to grapple with those ideas head on in that chapter on epistemology early in the book. So it laid a foundation for talking about dialogical engagement that wasn't um, just sort of you know, common sense friendly dialogues, hanging out with your girlfriend, that kind of thing. Because what tends to happen in these dialogues across differences in power is we misrecognize one another. All right, many white people misrecognize black people because they think, well, I, I black people, I get along with black people. And they don't realize they only know one black person, their one black friend is sort of standing in for all these other black people that they have not had conversations with and vice versa. I mean, the ability to say, boy, the guy who, you know, the, the really racist cop is, he's, he's a, a sign of all white people. No, I mean, so this dialogical engagement, this is difficult, and these are discussions that we need to have politically in democracies, but for the purposes of this particular project, this is something that's quite important for intersectionality, to really think about this methodology of dialogical engagement in many different settings and to ask who's not speaking, who's not there, how does the knowledge that we've produced, how is it compromised by not having a more diverse, heterogeneous group of people at the table? It's not enough just to say, bring them to the table. This whole notion of dialogical engagement gets at the methodology of that. Now that had real implications for how I was gonna write the book. I could not write a book about dialogical engagement that has that, you know, we should all just have these kinds of conversations without taking a stab at realizing how difficult it was to actually do. So the chapters that I have in the middle, let me just think what they are. The one where I've got uh, Black community, the idea of community and pragmatism, just opposed to Barnett, I think it was. And oh, yeah. And then I've got one with... Um, hold it, hold it, Simone de Beauvoir, uh, juxtaposed to Pauli Murray, because both of them talk about race, class, gender, those categories, but they talk about them in very different ways. They understand those categories differently, and and they, and they the arguments they make are quite different. And I think they would have had a lot to say to one another that it would, would have been highly productive for each one of them to hear, but that was not meant to be the case because we live in segregated worlds in many ways. So I felt it was important to put those two next to each other to show how when you don't have dialogical engagement and you pick one over the other, look at what you're missing potentially. So methodologically, you know, when I said earlier, I had a huge headache when I finished the book. I mean, these are some of the through themes of the book that I had to consider all the way through. Um, And that's one that I think is very important. And that comes from my travel, and that also comes from my work in intersectionality. Um, I would call everyone's attention to the book that I edited, excuse me, that I co-authored with Sirma Bilge, that is also entitled Intersectionality. It's for the Key Concepts Theory uh, series of Polity Press. And what we did was we hammered out intersectionality through various projects that were global, that come from very different settings, um, to come up with a, with a book where we had a singular narrative, where, but where both of our voices were represented. Um, they're sort of twined together. It was very hard work for both of us because we really disagreed about a lot of things, even though we agree about more than we disagree about. But it was worth the effort because I think the product that we came up with was much better than what either one of us could have done by ourselves. So um, that book enabled me to have the space to write this one because I didn't feel the need to put all of the examples that were speaking to the sort of bigger questions that are in this book, in this one particular book. So the dialogical engagement, um, so much more that could be said about that, but I'm just going to, um, Leave it because when it gets trendy, I may no longer be able to use that term the way I use it now. Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, well, so your descriptions in the book—one of the things they made me sort of imagine as I was—I was reading your description of how intersectionality needs to work—was to imagine intersectional theorists as these ranging and roving um, workers who were willing to go to. To work in academic disciplines, but also to then work in activist spaces. I mean, as you describe in your own life, and this willingness to not be at home, but also to then to learn the rules of being in that place, Um, and so to both be at home and not at home. Um, And so, I'm wondering if this, if the way I'm visualizing this theorizing of intersectionality is a as an apt one, this kind of ranginess um, of these theorists.
0: I think it combines certain aspects of the freedom to range and rove. But I also think most people don't have that kind of freedom. So I would distinguish between the sort of the kind of travel I've been able to do as a privileged person, uh, which I am careful not to become a tourist, where when I arrive somewhere, I expect it to be just like what I had at home, but I somehow have had a cosmetically different experience. Um, But I have to travel in order to see what's in the world. The idea that comes closest to what you brought up in terms of ranging and roving, the ranging in particular, has to do with moving among different interpretive communities uh, where you have power in one and not power in the other, right? This idea that I introduced early on in my career called the outsider within, Somebody who's within a community who has enough access to that community to know what the rules are, but will never be a full member of that community for whatever reason. And in my work, I grounded it because I do work in the sociology of knowledge, the sociology of it all, uh, in the work of Black women domestic workers who went into white homes to clean because that was the only job they could get other than working in the field. And that movement into that white space gave them a sense of an angle of vision on whiteness and on power and on gender and on class and on a variety of things that was unavailable to people who, quote, stayed home, who were just in the Black community, uh, using that particular language. They were outsiders within. They were often accepted terms like, you're just, you're like one of the family but they weren't one of the family. Uh, So this notion of recognizing multiple outsider within spaces, not as a tragedy that they wanted to become a member of the family, but as a way of being that we are frequently in these outsider within positions where we are guests in someone's home or working in someone's home. And we have to find a better way to think about that, that kind of travel or those kinds of journeys. Now we've got some really bad models of how not to do it. I actually think colonialism is how not to do it. You arrive in somebody's home on their land, you look around and you say, you're not doing anything with this. I want it. You take their land, you tell them to leave, and then you do all kinds of awful things. That's a way of coming into someone else's space and behaving incredibly badly. If somebody came in your house and started taking all your furniture and took your children, you you would not like that. So there's a way that we can enter into spaces from positions of power or from positions of not having power and having to navigate in a space where we are second. We have to shut up and listen. Uh, If we're a white man, we can't mansplain every place we go to everybody. We really have to learn how to listen and be humble. So this whole notion of a theorist or doing intellectual work that is respectful, but that is critical of pretty much wherever we go, trying to really understand things that are there. I ground the work in the power relations of outsider within theorizing. And I would also argue that many of those people who are doing this outsider within theorizing are now connecting up in the space of intersectionality. It's provided a space for all those wanderers who want to tell themselves, you know, that they are different than tourists and other people who wander for other types of reasons. Because this is a cause that is very much, or a discourse, that is very much grounded in issues of social justice, equity, fairness, and those normative principles. So that's how I think I would think about that whole question of the ranging and the roving of those of us who do this work.
1: Yeah, that's really helpful. Um, Well, and so what are you working on now? What is your next project?
0: (laughs) Well, my next projects really come from... um, what I've been, you know, it's a question, it's a continuation of what I've been working on all along. Uh, This past year has been a a good upset. That's the best way to describe it. The the notion of stopping and taking a step back from everything and saying, what am I looking at? What's in motion? Let's just pause it for a moment and see how it looks. So I can tell you about three um, focal points of the work that are projects that I envision as book projects and that I'm sparing myself from signing book contracts prematurely so I don't have those deadlines. One of them is entitled, has a working title of the interview project. Interviews like this profoundly fascinate me. I've been asked to be interviewed a lot in the last three years. And after a while, I thought, well, what are all these interviews? I started um, archiving them and saving them and seeing if I could see a pattern of what was happening in the interviews. And the interviews really started from all different places. Some people were interested in black feminist thoughts. Some are interested in current events in terms of what's going on with the pandemic. Some are interested in education, how we could plan a future that's better than what we have, all of that. Um, Many of them were conducted in relationship to a trip I took to Brazil at the end of 2019. So um, I have a whole series of interviews that are pretty much unpublished or when they are published, they are published in Portuguese. Uh, So I felt that I had enough to think about uh, a book called The Interview Project uh, that where I could take a step back and look at uh, interviews as, drumroll please, a site of dialogical engagement. (laughs) All right. So, you know, it's not like on the front end I thought I was going to do that, but it it really sort of, you know, if you're really in the social world, theorizing and thinking about it, things present themselves to you if you have an opportunity to view them that way. The second project that I'm working on also presented itself at a a conference um, earlier in 2020. I had the good fortune to go to Australia for the first time ever and participate in a conference where I was... Uh, introduced to the Deathscapes Project, which is a project at Curtin University and I believe Western Australia, I'm I'm getting the details wrong, but where they collect cases of um, violence that have been done, uh, they started with cases against Indigenous women, the missing um, and murdered women who are Indigenous in a global context, which is quite a significant social issue. So I had an opportunity to speak at that particular project about intersectionality, and a term jumped out at me from that particular project in one of the cases called Lethal Intersections. So I am now writing a book titled Lethal Intersections, Race, Gender, and Violence, where I am pulling out of all of my work, and you see some of it in this particular book, um, an intersectional analysis of violence and using violence to explore how um, power relations intersect. I think they intersect around social issues. This is a heuristic use again, you know, sort of now coming to life in a different way. So um, this would be a saturated site of intersectionality is some place where you can see these intersectional power relations. And when they are lethal, they become more visible to us. And for this particular book, I want to write it through the lens of resistance. so I want to take my own advice from intersectionality as critical social theory and see if I can write a book that is accessible, that is theoretically compelling and grounded, but it 's also highly readable for people who really care about this issue. This is a crucial issue. We saw what happened at the capitol. there we go Violence is around us, and the third book is will be a little more long term, but it carries the Uh, the title, Emancipatory Knowledge. And I'm very interested in the sociology of knowledge of resistant knowledge projects. So intersectionality is critical social theory. That chapter on resistant knowledge projects is almost uh, a way of outlining some ideas for the book. It's a book. It's not going to be about specific resistant knowledge projects, but it is really, I want to get a sense of what are the common threads that run through some of these resistant knowledge projects. And intersectionality, if it is a resistant knowledge project, um, becomes one project among many within this broader book that's about emancipatory knowledge. And this one really speaks to my belief that knowledge can empower, that knowledge and arguments matter. um, And it's not, they don't have to necessarily be theoretical arguments, but that knowledge and ideas is how we structure our social world and act in it. And so if you, Have a sense of yourself in terms of your agency and knowledge. You can really, um, how shall I say this? It opens up a sphere of freedom for each of us, the power of ideas. So those are the three projects. They are big, they are ambitious, but they are ongoing.
1: I can't wait to see them. Me too. Um, Well, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, Patricia Hill Collins, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you for talking with me this morning. And Sarah, it's been lovely talking with you. And thank you for this lovely invitation.